Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, we'll continue looking at verses 35 and 36. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river. And they aided the people and the house of God. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us from your word this morning. Not so we may merely be smarter, but God, that we would be more conformed to your image. We desire to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. We desire to be clothed in Him. We desire that our lives would be a testimony to all those around us. Shining the light of Christ, the light of the gospel in this darkened and dying world. And so, Lord, teach us. We sit at your feet. Let us not be distracted by all those things that must come. For there is only one thing that is truly needful. And that is to hear a word from you today. It is in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Last week we began to look at a question suggested by this very text. How someone who has been freed from captivity could still be considered a captive or an exile. You may recall that all those who returned to Jerusalem with Ezra had been free to do so for 80 years, for their entire lives, for the lives of their parents, and for many, for the lives of their grandparents. They had been granted freedom to return from Babylonia to Jerusalem back to the land that their ancestors had been forcibly removed from by Nebuchadnezzar, back to the land that God had promised Abraham and his descendants. And by definition, if they are coming with Ezra now, they had not returned before. They had, for their own reasons, chosen to spend eight decades more in captivity than they had to. And so I thought it fitting at this point in our consideration of the book of Ezra to take a pause from the narrative to examine more closely those things in our experience that might try to recaptivate us, to bring us back into its captivity. Those things that the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ has freed us from, but we are still tempted to return to. Last week, we looked at that continuous call of sin that would bring us back into its chains. And I would remind you that sin, no matter how tame or how under control you think it is in your life, is a deadly enemy that seeks to destroy you. This week, we shall take our time together to look at another of these imposters 
who would try to steal God's grace from us and leave us in total ruin. Because for all who would do well, there is always the danger of being ensnared and being taken captive by the law. Now you may be quoting to yourself Romans 7.12 where Paul says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And you would be entirely correct. The danger of the law is not that it is bad in itself. It is absolutely good. It is the words of a holy God given to us for our instruction. But the danger is that for one who has been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, the law has nothing to add. It does nothing to strengthen the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to all who believe. And its judgment holds no terror for those who trust in the grace of God through our Lord. Certainly we learn from it, but that is a vastly different relationship with the law than returning to its ordinances, its rules, or its judgments. For the follower of Jesus Christ, the law makes a good and instructive servant, but a cruel and merciless master. Please allow me to explain. We can take a look and I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You may want to keep your finger there for a little while. We'll come back to it. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Reading verses 8 through 10. We see Paul telling his protege, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. We began with the idea that the law is good, and here Paul adds a caveat to that. It is good if one uses it lawfully. So whether the law is a servant or a slave master depends entirely on how we use the law. And so I guess that brings us to how we're supposed to relate to the law or to ask it another way, what is the law for? Why did God give the law? After all, there's no doubt that every commandment was given by God Himself and He gave it to us to tell us what pleases Him, what His will is. That is the purpose of the law. These are the things that please God. He gave the law to tell us what it takes to be acceptable enough to have a relationship with Him. Now, there are many modern Pharisees outside the church who scoff at the idea of a relationship with God. I know we often consider those inside the church to be candidates for Pharisee of the Month. And there are truly some inside those churches. You've probably met some. 
But if you look at the characteristics of the Pharisee, we see that the title belongs to those who criticize others who don't measure up, who philosophize about morality, and who reject Jesus Christ as the one who truly brings righteousness, believing that they can supply it themselves by simply following the law better. Recall that Pharisee who prayed right next to the publican. The Pharisee's prayer is not seeking God's righteousness. He was simply proclaiming his own. I thank thee that I'm not like this sinner here. And we know in the day of judgment, many will try to stand on their own merits and all who attempt to do so will fall. Because the law condemns everyone. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's Romans 3, 10 and 11. The law was never intended to save you. It was intended to show you your great need for salvation. It is a light to expose the darkness in the most self-righteous heart. And it is the very thing that will be used to condemn everyone. For those not found on that day in Christ, they will bear the condemnation themselves for all eternity. And for the follower of our Lord Jesus Christ, our condemnation is borne by Him already through God's great love and grace and mercy. But the law condemns all sin. The law could not save you. It never could save you. It never will save you. But the law was meant to drive you to the Savior. We read earlier in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, but the Scripture, meaning the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That is the purpose of the law, to bring us all under sin so that we could be released by the Savior. Looking back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, look on to verse 9. And we see this explained. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Who are the just He is talking about here only moments ago? We read, there are none righteous. The just here can only mean those who are justified by Jesus Christ. The just are those who have received justification, not that have earned justification. There's simply no other way to read it. The reason Paul even says this to Timothy is found in the preceding verses of this chapter where the apostle is talking about the men who have come into Ephesus wanting to teach the law. But in teaching the law, they had come not to instruct the believers in holiness, but to bring them back under the dominion of the law. 
They had come to recaptivate them, to carry them back in chains. To carry them back under the condemnation of the law. To lure them back through clever arguments, through doubt and through guilt, through any means they could to break them from their faith in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But all that false teaching illustrates their misunderstanding of the law, their misapplication of the law, and those who would be led back into that captivity to the rules and to the ordinances are following in that misunderstanding, including many who are hearing me today. To help us understand I would remind you of the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. You recall in that sermon, Jesus, our Lord, declared, you have heard it said, and then followed it up, but I say to you. Over and over again, He used that formula, you have heard it said, but I declare to you. And many of us, as we read this, Understand correctly that our Lord was exposing the law to be deeper than simply dictating our behavior. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, He says, You have heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so we see from that at the very surface that sin can happen in our heart where man cannot see, but God can see clearly. But if we think that Jesus in that sermon was simply expanding the commandments to include our thoughts and our intentions, we fail to understand the complete and the profound lesson here. Jesus wasn't simply saying, you've gotten this far in the law and you've done well, but there's another step to go. There's another level to get to. That wasn't what Jesus came to tell us. It wasn't merely decimating the self-righteous who found the Ten Commandments too easy to follow. He was explaining what the law is at its very heart. And if you are having trouble reconciling the law of God with the grace of God as taught in the Scriptures, I hope that the rest of our discussion this morning will help you. Because the teaching I would ask you to consider this morning is this. The law of God is not primarily about your conduct. It is about your character. Based on what Jesus explains in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the law says you shall not commit adultery. And when it says that, it doesn't simply mean you don't go out and have an affair. It means don't even be the person who would commit adultery. Don't be the person who could commit adultery. If it was just about not having an affair or remaining pure until you were married, there are many in the world who could claim to be innocent here. But the law has always from the very beginning judged the inner man. It has always held the light of God's holiness against us and judged whether we could commit adultery. What merit is there? 
and someone who would commit adultery but simply had no opportunity. Is that person innocent? Would you call that person good? The law demands that you would not be capable in your heart of adultery. Or consider the person who doesn't murder because because the law says you shall not murder. Are you less guilty if you set your heart on murder but then are thwarted in the attempt? Are you guiltless even if you would but you're only only restrained by the word of the law? The law demands that we be the person who is incapable of murder, who would never have a passing thought of disgust for anyone else, who would not, who would know no hate, no curses, and not even a sarcastic comment. That is the person the law would have you be. That is the person that the law said, I will declare innocent. Everyone else is guilty. We could go through each of the Ten Commandments, but I think you get the point. Now your first reaction might be to deny this very teaching. That the law cuts this deeply. You might even declare in your heart, the law can't mean that because that would mean that nobody can be that good. And I say that is precisely the message that Jesus wants us to understand. Nobody can be that good. That is precisely our state before our God. Our holy God who sits in righteousness. That is the state we are in. We can't claim that we are good because we know our hearts are evil. We know that we have not put to death the evil and the sin and the hatred and the covetousness. We haven't put that to death. It's still inside us. We may just look good to others because we don't show it. That is precisely why all of our pathetic efforts toward righteousness end up no more than filthy rags. Please hear me. No amount of striving to get better will change who you are. No amount of obedience or fasting or prayer or effort will change your innermost being. Your innermost character. Perhaps you're trapped in sin and you have spent sleepless nights and tormented days tearfully repenting of your sin only to return to it time and time and time again. But you've seen it grow in your life like a destructive cancer consuming you and all those around you. You will not be saved by any more willpower. You will not be saved by more law. The guilty criminal standing before the judge is not in need of more law. He is in need of mercy. He desperately needs a Savior. That is the only hope he has for life, for freedom from captivity. 
Only the application of the blood of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit can save you. Only the death of your old man and the new creation raised up in Jesus Christ. Only to be clothed, to be surrounded, to be enveloped by Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness can accomplish what the law of God demands. It is a miraculous transformation. One that is accomplished by God alone. To go from someone who simply tries to keep their sin hidden from others while in your heart you know that repulsive sin inside. To be transformed, to be raised in new life that fears no condemnation and is guided by the Spirit of Christ to be truly pleasing to God. But we spend all our time working on our conduct. And please hear me when I say to break the commandments of God in deeds is sinful. It should be avoided. But our hope is not in our obedience to the law. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. You can look at it this way. If I described your life, it was, if it was illustrated as a tree, the fruit of the tree would be the deeds that you do, your conduct. But your heart would be the root of the tree. It's your character. You are known by your fruits, but the law judges your character, the type of tree you are. And if you are in Christ, you have been taken from that old root and you have been grafted in to the root that is Jesus Christ. Your character has been changed from death into life. Our hope is not in our obedience to to the law. It is in Jesus Christ alone. That heart, that sinful nature must be changed. And no amount of work making the fruit more appealing will change the type of fruit it is or the quality it is receiving from that root. But the temptation to return to rules and regulations is strong. We would rather bow down to two stone tablets than we would before our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll not find the work of Jesus Christ completed, however, by your efforts. Pharisees clean the outside. Jesus gives us a righteousness that is greater than that of the Pharisees. The world around us loves to see people zealous in the law. They're enamored with Muslims who pray five times a day, bowing toward Mecca, making a great show of it, even though they follow the doctrines of demons. Celebrities convert to Judaism because of the demands it places on them through the law because they think they will measure up or that they think they will become better people. But those very people crucified the Lord of glory. They don't bow down to Him. They raise Him up on a cross. They beat Him and they judged Him guilty of death. They love the idea of the law because they love themselves and their own self-righteousness. They despise Jesus even though He offers 
the only true way to please God. Paul saw people in his day who were following that exact same path. In Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He says they had a zeal for God. These are people who had had the law for a thousand years. But they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They wanted to earn their way to God. To make themselves good enough. To build themselves into a tower that would reach into heaven. That would earn their way. But they did not understand that the demands of God's righteousness demanded that they be people who would not break those very laws. They refused to follow the only way to God. So when Paul says, he says, I pray that they may be saved from the law. And then Paul gives us that beautiful truth, that truth that can set you free today if you have allowed yourself to be captivated by the law. He says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law leads to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ completes the work of the law. Do you want to have peace with God? It's not through more rules to follow. It is through Jesus Christ alone. Have you finally come to the point where you know that if you try a thousand times, you will fail again to clean yourself up from your sin? No amount of someone telling you to stop it will help. Only the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart converting you, changing you, rebuilding you from the inside. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself and do this all from a heart that God has transformed, made alive through Jesus Christ our Lord. Use the law lawfully. If you were in Christ, let it expose the darkness that remains in you. Let it shine God's light on your sin and accomplish its task. Let it drive you then to the Savior. Let it drive you anew to repentance. Let it drive you to the end of yourself and to the fullness of Him who saved you. Let it drive you to repentance, bowing only to Him who is able to save you. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that we have sought to do things our own way. We thought we looked good in front of people.
We thought that if the world around us did not condemn us, then we would be safe standing before you. Or perhaps we don't even think of the judgment at all. Perhaps we just consider that this is the life where we want to be pleasing to others. Forgive us. Forgive us for being the Pharisee that you condemned. Forgive us for not understanding the law, the full weight of it, that we cannot possibly hope to carry. But God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who carried every single piece perfectly, let our trust be in Him. We repent of our own self-righteousness. We ask that You bring Your law and apply it to our hearts to show us any darkness that's in us. Not so we can clean it up ourselves, but that we may bring it into the light of Jesus Christ and have it completely cleansed from us. Not to hold it or to coddle it, but to kill it. Because it is only the blood of Jesus Christ that can accomplish that great miracle. We would love you more. More than life itself. More than our reputation. More than our comfort. God, we want to love you more than anything else. You have raised us up as we are in you, as new creatures. Let us never return to the captivity of the rule. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has freed us from sin, who has freed us from the law. And has taken upon Himself the punishment that we deserved. Amen.